Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. We have been walking through parts of the Gospel of Matthew in this series that is really looking at the kingdom of God and us wanting to really wrap our minds around and have our hearts aligned with God's Word and, and, and what it means to be people of the kingdom and to be part of the kingdom of God and to have this, this king who is the king of the kingdom and to understand these aspects and how then that speaks into our life today. And so today we're going to be looking specifically at verses 31 through 46. And as you're finding your way there, I want to say thank you. Um, so we had a kind of pivot kind of quickly over the weekend, Friday's announcement that in Orleans Parish that there is a mass mandate for indoors again, and then communicating that to, to you guys. And I just want to thank you um, for the cooperation that we share together and being able to do the things that we can to, to maintain a positive posture um, with the, the, the local authorities here in our, in our community, but also of wanting to do what we can to help protect the public. And so thank you for not making a stink about, about face masks and things like that. And I want us to stop even as we get started and pray. I, I know personally of a lot of folks, and I have my own list, and I bet you do too, of folks right now that are facing COVID that maybe not may not be hospitalized, but um, one of our members, Violet Nix, made known that one of her employees has a, a small child in ICU right now with COVID-19. And so it's very serious. And so I want us to pray for those right now that are going through that and members. And then also I know that we have a lot of folks at home right now during this fourth wave. And that hard to believe this is the fourth wave. And you kind of see those spikes um, that we're going through right now. And so I want to pray for those right now that are on the front lines. I want to pray for our healthcare workers. I want to pray for those that are battling COVID right now. So would you pray with me? Father, I pray in this moment that as we continue in worship, you know right now that there are people that are battling for their life. Um, and so, Lord, we, we lift them up to you, those right now, um, this precious little one um, that I saw a picture of in ICU, kind of lift, I lift her up to you, and I pray, God, that your hand would be on her to sustain her and give her life and bless her family, God. Lord, I lift up so many others right now that in Orleans are in the hospital right now, and they're on ventilators, and they are struggling to breathe, God, that you would touch them and heal them. Lord, that you would allow us as a community to come together um, in this moment to care for, encourage, respect, honor, love one another in this moment. So, Lord, please, we pray for strength for those on the front lines. We know that they are worn thin after a year and a half of battling COVID. So give them strength now for this fourth wave. Um, we pray, Father, for, um, for governing authorities, for our leaders, Father, that are in elected positions. You give them wisdom, God, that comes from you. We want your will to be done, Father, above all else. So, Lord, please, we pray that you would bless um, our city. Father, bless our state and nation in this moment. And, Father, continue to be with other nations, our brothers and sisters that are in other contexts where they do not have access to medical care like we do in New Orleans. Um, so, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would continue to be gracious and to protect, Father, and bring to an end COVID-19. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for praying. Thank you for um, for 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 working with us in this moment um, of this fourth wave. Well, as we turn to the to the Gospel of Matthew, um, kind of one of the phrases that, that comes to mind is, I didn't see it coming. I don't know about you, but as I think about COVID-19 and that 2020, ser you know, 2020 year, um, where I was in Lake Charles at that moment, and you maybe can think about exactly where you were, whether you were already in New Orleans or somewhere else, but, you know, 2020, as far as a pastor goes, every pastor, 
pastor was like, I'm going to do something really creative and do a 2020 series. You know, 2020 vision, clarity, all those kind of things. So every pastor is like, I'm a genius. You know, I'm using 2020 as like a little phrase here. And they're doing their sermon series and all those kind of things. And you're thinking, you know, this is a year to kind of look at the next five years or 10 years, and all those things. And then all of a sudden, something kind of is in the news, like there's something going on um, in, over in China, and, and it seems like it's maybe spreading, and it's like, well, what's going on? And then you're just kind of sitting there, and then all of a sudden, boom, the world closes. I was personally at the airport about to get on a plane to go to North Africa when a friend texted me from the IMB and said, hey, I don't know if you've seen this, but I don't know that you should go on this trip or whatever. And so right there as a missions pastor leading a trip, I have this difficult moment of, of telling the team, guys, we, I don't think we need to go. And, and everybody being so disappointed, but by the end of the week, the whole world being in lockdown. And if we had gone, we would have been there for about six weeks, um, four weeks longer than we had planned um, because all the airlines closed. And, and I think about that moment and I think, man, I didn't see it coming. I've seen the movies, you've probably seen them too, you know, on Netflix about pandemics and these things, these outbreaks and all that kind of stuff. But that's all it was, right? was a movie. It was something that, that could happen. But man, when this really did happen, I have to be honest, I didn't see it coming. There, was n there had never been a moment in my life that I had thought, what would I do if there was a global pandemic? If there was something that impacted every person on the earth all at the same time, everybody was in it together, and nobody could really escape it. I, I never really thought about that. But the reality that as we turn to God's Word and consider is that there is going to be a global reality that is coming our way that rather than getting to it and saying, man, I never saw this coming. I, I, I mean, I had no idea this is how it would one day go God's Word invites all people to consider something that will impact every nation, every person on the planet, a global impact with this one moment that will bring everyone to account. And rather than it catching you off guard, God in His grace, through the words of Jesus here in the Gospel of Matthew says, I want you to be ready and that readiness is something that happens today. Today. And so I want to invite you to, to stand for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to begin in verse 31 and read down through the end of the chapter. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or, or without clothes and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father, I pray this morning, thanking you for your word, admitting its weight, but also admitting its grace, that you in your grace do not desire for this day, the day of the Lord, to catch anyone unprepared but instead have made clear that there will be a day and that it is only those blessed by the Father who have responded to the Son that shall inherit eternal life. So Lord, please lead us into your grace today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to pose as a way of making our way through this passage today four questions. Four questions, because the reality is this, the king is coming. As we're walking through the gospel of Matthew and we're learning about the kingdom and about the king who is preeminent in the kingdom, I want us to get this part down, the king is coming. I want you to understand that about the king, Jesus Christ, and I want you to understand that about his kingdom, it is coming, he is coming. And you might say, well, didn't he already come? I mean, isn't that what you're reading right here? Stuff that happened 2,000 years ago. That's correct. But notice Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And throughout the New Testament, there is a pointing to this day that will come. And that is to what Jesus points in this moment and makes clear. So we anticipate the coming of the King. And as we walk through this passage Jesus himself prepares us for that day and prepares us how to live in this day. August 1st, 2021. So the first question that we need to answer is this. Do we see him coming? Do we see him coming? Do we see him coming in glory? See, that's one of the things that the New Testament makes clear is that when he comes, it will not be in this humble position, born in a manger, born of a virgin, like it was the first time. There will be no obscurity to his coming. All will know, all will recognize the king for who he is. The king will be seen as preeminent, as having all authority, all glory, all worthy of all respect, everyone will see in that moment exactly who he is. There will be no question. He will come in his glory. 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. So all the glory that we ascribe to God the Father, so will the Son come in that glory. Then he will reward each according to what he has done. Matthew 16, 27. Then the, son of the, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24, 30. And then from Titus, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in sensible, righteous, and godly ways in the present age while we wait. For this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are longing for, we are looking forward to the appearing of his glory. But when he comes, he's going to come in glory and he's going to come, as it continues on in verse 31, coming with all the angels. What does this communicate? The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather from His kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. Matthew 13, 41. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Then He will reward each to what He has done. Matthew 16, 27. He, the Son of Man, will send out His angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Matthew 24, 31. In other words, this is not something isolated that might happen. This is something iterated again and again and again by Jesus. This will take place, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-8. through 8. You see, the reality is all of these verses of the coming of the king in glory, the coming of the king with his angels is this. It is a picture of a victorious king advancing with his mighty army of warriors. I mean, think of angels as as warriors of light. And the king coming with all of this brilliance and all of this glory that no one can deny, that everyone will recognize in a moment. There will be no conflict. There will be no Facebook banter over whether this is really Jesus or not. Unlike this pandemic, all will see in a moment and know with clarity, without dispute, that this is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he's coming, it says, as it goes on, to sit on his glorious throne. As Revelation portrays, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 3-5. He's coming to sit on his throne and then all of the nations will be gathered before him. Revelation says earlier, after this I looked. And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed with with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. 
And Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The picture of these things is this, that one day the king is going to come with all of his might and all of his glory, with all of his army, in order to rule over all of creation, including all of the nations. Or as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that will be clear in that moment. That all authority belongs to him. Now think for a moment. Because likely none of you disagree with me at this point. But like me, you likely have a life that disagrees with this reality. That there are things in your life and in my life right now that do not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. We are living in this moment in opposition to Jesus Christ as Lord with our finances, with our marriage, with what we watch as entertainment, with where we go in our time. The things that we give our affection to, the way that we're thinking about things, the way that we're answering questions, the posts that we're making, all of these things are not revealing this truth that we would all affirm in a moment. That we would say, amen, Jesus is coming, amen, he's king of kings and lord of lords. But then when our life is put under the microscope and examined, there's very little about it that says Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. And this man, this woman has surrendered to this reality. You see, today I'm convinced that part of the weakness that we know, the anemia that we know in the church is because we do not ponder this reality deeply and frequently enough. You see, thinkers like C.S. Lewis allowed such thoughts to permeate their mind and imagination, resulting in works of fiction that reflect the gospel and the reality of the king's one-day return. Works that influenced countless believers and unbelievers. We need men and women like C.S. Lewis again in our day who will not simply be more productive, but more profound, who will think deeply on these realities. But the reality of the coming king, the coming victorious, the coming victory of his might with his army of warriors to rule and reign over all creation is not simply meant to encourage us to hold on. It's not just meant to, to be something, well, let me lock that away as a bit of information that if I'm in Bible trivia and it's like, you know, so what happens at the end? Jesus comes. Okay, great. You know, you, you, you win that, that question. That's not what it's meant to do. Jesus, in this context, he is telling us these things as a warning. And to remind you of the context, it is both his followers and those who really aren't following him that are at all times seemingly listening. So he's warning a crowd, a mixed audience, if you will, or as he says it here, sheep and goats. He's speaking to a mixed room, and the New Testament seems to affirm that anytime we gather, so that even in this room right now, we're a mixed audience. I mean, Paul, the reason he has to tell the church how to deal with the reality of a mixed audience is because he anticipated a mixed audience. That there would be people who were following after Jesus and then those who maybe were saying with their mouth they were following after Jesus. 
but their hearts had not been given to him. Their hearts had not been born again. They still had a heart of stone rather than a heart of flesh that only Jesus can give. And so even here today, I anticipate, based on the New Testament, that there are some in this room right now that will say with their lips, Jesus is Lord, but your heart is far from him. And so hear the words, not of Chad Gilbert, but of Jesus Christ warning you about his coming because he wants you to be prepared for that day. He warns us here that one day all people will be separated by him into two groups. We won't decide, we won't pick who, none of that. Jesus will make a final judgment on who goes to the right and who goes to the left. Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, notes that the central biblical and Jewish role of an eschatological end-of-time judge was that Jesus assumes here normally belonged to God himself. And so this passage, like countless others, is a statement about the deity of Jesus, that, that, that Jesus is God with us. Craig Keener goes on to note that although in biblical and Jewish tradition, shepherds could represent Moses, David, and others, it was the chief shepherd who was God himself. The imagery of sheep and goats would have been immediately understood by Jesus' original audience. I don't know about you, but I don't do much with sheep and goats. But in Jesus' day, sheep and goats would be featured together. You would often see them out in a pasture at the same time around each other. And for the most part, sheep and goats actually got along. They could coexist. So in other words, you could look in one pasture and see both. And they're not necessarily fighting. They're kind of coexisting. But then at night, at night, shepherds would separate the goats to keep them warm. Because they don't have as thick of a, of, a, of a wool. While the sheep prefer to stay out in the open air at night. Because they are so covered in wool. Jesus makes the point that just as there is a separation at the end of the day. There is going to be a day of the Lord. Where there will be a final separation. And while there may have been a commingling during the day. For a season. For a while. One day there will be a separation that happens and the one that does the separating is the shepherd. The good shepherd. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew chapter 13 verses 39 through 43. The harvest is the end of the age, Jesus says, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin, those guilty of lawlessness. They will be thrown, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. Psalm chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The distinction between those on the right and on the left is this, to those on the right, the king says, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So you are either blessed by the father or you are not. That's what this comes down to. You say, well, but, but what, do I, what do I do to get his blessing? 
How do I I receive the blessing of the Father? This is grace. There is nothing that we can do to merit it. We can't earn it. This is something that God the Father graciously gives to those whom he calls. But you say, well, gosh, but am I just supposed to, to live in this anxiety through all of this life, looking to that final day and just like, I don't know which group I'm going to be in. I I don't know how this all shakes out. Will we just hold our breath, hoping not to be shuffled in in the group to the left and, and find ourselves in the group to the right? If that's the case, then you and I should dread the day of the Lord. We can't join with John at the end of Revelation saying, come Lord Jesus. Because there ought to be in us, if you can't have any certainty, any, any sense of security in this life, a dread over that day because you don't know which way you're going. And some of you are living in that dread right now. If I were to ask you very pointedly, do you know where you will spend eternity? A lot of you will, will answer me with a, with, with a statement that's like, well, I hope. I mean, I really don't know, but I hope I've done enough good things. I feel like I've tried to be a really good person. And there's going to be an aspect of what Jesus says here today that for some will lead you who are trying to earn your place in heaven on a works-based salvation road where you say, I see hungry people, I feed them. I see naked people, I clothe them. I see thirsty people, I give them something to drink. And that's how I get to heaven. But today, we want to be careful students of the Word in its context, in a full biblical context, to rightly walk away understanding what it is that Jesus was speaking to the original audience and what He is speaking to us today from His Word. You see, if uncertainty were what we were supposed to be left with, and that would be the end of this pericope, of this section, of this paragraph. But that's not where it ends. Instead, we see a direct correlation established between the blessing of the Father and the relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. We should see Him coming, but the next question is, do we see Him suffering? Do we see the King suffering today? You say, Chad, Jesus is in heaven. Jesus, the, the, the gospels clearly portray, Acts clearly records that Jesus ascended into heaven and the angels then promised the disciples that one day he's going to return in the same way that you've seen him coming. When, when Hebrews talks about Jesus, it talks about him standing at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for us. I mean, there's all of these biblical passages that feature Jesus in heaven. So, Chad, what are you talking about? Do you see him suffering? Are you talking about 2,000 years ago on the cross? Well, look what Jesus said. Remember what he said. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Notice that Jesus does something here that means something for us today, and that's this. He uses the first person singular, I I was hungry, Jesus says, and you gave me something to eat. I, he says, first person singular, was was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. I was in prison. I, I, I. And this is confusing. Not only as people are listening to this parable told, but also to the people in the parable. 
when did we see you? Jesus, we didn't see you. You see, this idea of the I speaks to the union that Christ in his grace has chosen to have with us as his people. There is this amazing unity that Jesus allows for us to share with him where he in his grace comes and unites himself with you. You see, when we do baptism right over here in these waters and we say this this little phrase, buried with Christ in death, raised to walk in the newness of life, we are speaking about a union that has taken place. That if I am united with Jesus in his death and I am united with Jesus in his life, and it's no longer, as Paul says, I who live, but Christ who lives within me. There is union. But that could lead to an abuse, right? Where I say, I am Jesus Christ. And that's the magic of cults. There are groups that begin to identify and individuals that begin to identify themselves in a way that goes beyond the text by, by putting their unity with God so high that they begin to essentially say, I am God. I am God. And you say, well, man, Chad, that's kind of extreme. We see the evidence of that in some of the word faith movement as well, where, where you and I speak things into existence where I name it and then I claim it and, and all of these different things, you say, well, what? that's me playing God. That's me doing things that the scriptures record God doing and we don't see people doing. And so we need to be mindful that these kind of things, the, the tentacles of that sort of thought trickle into the church even today, even here in New Orleans. So we need to be mindful in this moment But at the same time, celebrating that Jesus in his grace has so closely identified himself with his followers, with with the believers, that he would say, I, first person singular, this union. But then we see the plural pronoun in verse 40, these siblings of mine. You see, he says, and the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So distinction. So there's union, but also separation. In some ways, this, we, we, we understand this, this reality by also looking to God himself, who exists as one being eternally, who is coexistent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's distinction of person, but unity in the Godhead. You say, well, so Chad, are you saying that we're, no, no, no. What I'm communicating is this. That there is this incredible mystery to the union that we share with Christ while at the same time remaining distinct from him. And this is a balance that we see maintained throughout Scripture where sometimes it seems to lean more toward the union and then sometimes more toward the distinction. And that's where we live. And that's where this passage leaves us textually. Jesus says, The least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Let the word guide us specifically here. You see, Paul in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us us work for the good of all. And I think that's the day and age that we live in. We gravitate to that. Let us do good to all. If you're 40 or younger in this room, that resonates with you. Maybe more than it does other generations. Let us do good to all. But notice that Jesus, I mean, that Paul goes on in Galatians to say, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. 
You see, that's a tension that we have to maintain and that we need to rekindle in the church today. The Greek word translated especially could also be translated most of all or above all or especially or particularly. So that Paul is saying above all those who belong to the household of faith. In Acts chapter 6, the provision of food for the widows is understand, understood to be the provision of food for widows in the church, Hellenistic and Jewish. But they were professing believers. It was the responsibility of the church, and that's why the church appoints leaders to meet the need. Today, some in church, especially of a younger generation, would, would call that sort of prioritizing care in the church as bigoted. But it's actually biblical. And not just an example, but in prescription. But why the priority? I mean, why would Jesus do this? Is it just so that we can say, well, we're better than the world or we don't care about the world? No, he says, let us work for the good of all, but especially above all, those who belong to the household of faith. The reason for the priority is right here in the text, these siblings of mine, these siblings of mine. Jesus says, these brothers and sisters of mine, we are brothers and sisters in this room in the deepest, truest, most long-term sense of those words. Now, does that mean that we turn a blind eye to our biological family when needs arise? God's word says no. I mean, don't you love the fullness of the counsel of the word of God? Because when we might go into the ditch of neglecting our own family, God's word pulls us right back in. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, it says, Support widows who genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. But here in this text today, Jesus is calling us to account concerning how we treat the least of these siblings of his as those within the body. Our care for one another in the church should be profound above all else. There should be no need among us because we are meeting the needs of one another. Practical, urgent needs in the body. You see, we see him suffering when we see one another suffering. That's what this is communicating. And how we respond to one another within the body of Christ is how we are responding to Jesus himself. So we are supposed to see him coming. We are supposed to see him suffering. But do we see him wrongly? You see, that's what strikes me in this passage as we walk through this text is the reality that both groups saw the same thing. There's no distinction. They both saw hunger. They both, they both saw thirst. They both saw nakedness, imprisonment, uh, sickness. They, they saw the same exact thing, and neither saw Jesus. Neither saw Jesus. Both asked the same question, when did we see you? You know, today I think a primary aspect of this teaching of Jesus that we are most prone to miss is this, being a follower of Christ may mean hunger, thirst, being a stranger, being naked, being sick, being imprisoned. You see, from our position at First Baptist New Orleans, we are likely to find ourselves looking around the room today and saying, I didn't see anyone hungry today. I didn't see anyone thirsty. I didn't see anyone naked. I didn't see a stranger. Or if I saw a first-time guest, I welcomed them. And I didn't see anyone in prison. 
And then we leave saying, but if I had, I would have acted. This is part of the need and power of being deeply connected with our brothers and sisters in other contexts, both locally, our brothers and sisters that are right here in New Orleans, and our brothers and sisters that are in different contexts all around this world, in Central Asia, in North Africa, in the jungles of Peru. I'm telling you, that is the power of having those sort of connections and why we are prioritizing relationships with missionaries, with the International Mission Board, is not just so that we can be part of this big system called the the Southern Baptist Convention, being Great Commission Baptist, the cooperative program. It's not just about that white-collar part of the, the SBC, this professional and a meeting and all those things. It's not about that. It is about the lifeline that it establishes right into the heart of an unreached area where people for the very first time are hearing the name of Jesus. And as they are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, many of them in Muslim nations experiencing a complete cutoff from their family, some of them receiving death threats, some of them being killed themselves, that they would know that there is a church in another nation praying for them, interceding for them, sending a a family unit to live in their country in order to shepherd them and care for them and share this good news of hope with them. It means the world. They can't believe it. And then when opportunities come for us to go on short-term mission trips to go there, and they find out that we spent our money to come and just to be with them, just to encourage them in their faith in order to help meet needs, to, to touch them, to hold their hand, to pray with them, to do Bible study with them, that means more than we could ever know. You see, here in our context, we have been so so diluted with all of this, all of these Bible studies. You can do right now media at any time. You can go on and listen to a podcast at any time. You could come to church or you could, or you could not. You could stay home if you want to. It doesn't matter. You know, all of these things. And these things begin to change the way that we value the church. So that then when you're told, you know, the church is praying for you, you're like, okay. Church is praying for me. Okay. But our brothers and sisters in another context right now, when they know that there's a church praying for them, it does something to keep their head above the water in an ocean of isolation and of difficulty. It does something profound. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's when we begin to hear those stories and know those names and see those lives and learn of those churches and and begin to have fellowship with them and begin to pray for them more and more deeply and, and be concerned about their people group coming to Christ. It changes us. It begins to make us realize the blessing that we are to one another rather than the, than the burden we are to each other because of our different political views or, or responses to COVID-19 and all those things. Those things fall away as we focus on what matters. So that's why it matters. And that's why I'm so grateful right now that we can have that sort of relationship that we can have that sort of influence in our lives because we need it. Because left to ourselves, just gathering as First Baptist New Orleans, we may never really experience a brother or sister in hunger or in thirst, naked or imprisoned. 
because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But praise be to God, the family is big and the opportunities are many for us to put into practice exactly what the Lord's word says. You see, the reality is this, that when we look at the Apostle Paul working in the New Testament, we see him very often engaging one congregation and helping meet the needs of another. You see, to the church at Corinth, he communicates to them that he had been working with the church in Macedonia and that the church in Macedonia had been so concerned about the famine and the needs that were going on in Jerusalem. Ironically enough, the very audience that he's speaking to and kind of getting ready that suffering is coming for you, that 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 church in Macedonia gave beyond their means in order to help meet the needs, the physical urgent needs of the church in Jerusalem. And so they gave, and he was telling the church in Corinth, be encouraged by their example to give generously and joyfully as led by God's Spirit to meet these needs. And so as we look to being more and more a generous giving church, things that we have been talking about last week and are still looking ahead, I hope that we will give more and more to the urgent spiritual and physical needs all around the world, engaging locally and engaging globally. But God's word also challenges us because it's the very group to whom he spoke that would face that hunger, thirst, exile, nakedness, imprisonment, and nothing exempts us from the same. By his grace, in his word, we should no longer see him wrongly. But here's the final question. Do we see him working? You see, as we look at this passage, it almost seems like Jesus is saying, we go to heaven based on our good works. And he says, you know, they say, why, why am I going into the kingdom? And he says, well, you saw me hungry and you fed me. Yeah, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And so it almost seems like Jesus is saying that based on your good works, you get to go to heaven. So is that what he just said? No. He said in verse 46 that the righteous will enter into eternal life. The righteous. Not those who just do right things, but the righteous. And the problem that that presents with us from the scriptures is this, that there is none righteous, no, not one. The scriptures teach that our righteousness is as worthless as used feminine products, is the language that Isaiah uses. That's how valuable our righteousness is before God. The righteous do righteous acts because they have been made righteous by the righteous one. You see, that's the context that we cannot just look at this passage alone and say, well, I guess I should just go out and get busy and start giving to charities and doing things and stuff like that so that I'll go to heaven. Instead, what Scripture again and again communicates is that God, in His grace, saves us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, coming again to this table and looking specifically at these elements and what they represent, that it's only by His body and only by His blood that we are made clean. That righteousness becomes ours. 
And then in righteousness, in this righteous state that was given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we go into New Orleans and all nations to do righteous deeds. Because my eyes have been made righteous, I will rightly see you. Not because I'm just such a compassionate person and and like to help people and all those kind of things, but because Jesus has redeemed my eyeballs. He's given salve for my eyes so that I can see. And while I still may miss it, in his grace, he who started this work in me will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And the same is true of you. That we are called to righteous works because we have been made righteous. And that righteousness starts in the household of faith. This passage is calling us to be prepared And so I'm going to ask in this moment that as we enter into this time, that you will enter into a genuine time of examination. Does your life right now reveal, does it demonstrate that you've been made righteous? Is your life an evidence through your love for the body? Or if you were honest, would you say, I don't really love the church. I don't love the people in the church. It's not who I love. I love I love other people. I don't, I don't really care about the church. That should concern you. That should be a warning to you because Jesus in this text is warning you that you are very likely to turn a blind eye to the very ones that he calls the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And so in the very moment that you are being warned and cautioned In preparation for the day of the victorious king, we look back to a moment where a body was given and blood was shed so that righteousness could be given. So that righteousness would be available. Jesus was without sin. He was pure He did nothing deserving death. But his body was given and his blood was shed for you and for me. That is grace. No one in Jesus' day deserved it and no one in our day and in this room deserves it. It is a gift of grace. How good God is that he would save sinners like you and me. And so as we come to this, I want to invite you to open the bread portion of your Lord's Supper. And I remind you of these words that Paul wrote from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this today in remembrance of him. So take and eat. And then I invite you to open the juice side of this element. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So take in remembrance of Christ and of his sacrifice.
But in light of all that we have spoken this morning, I want you to hear this final verse. Because the king is coming. And when we take of this juice and we eat of this bread, hear what Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, the only way that you will be ready for the day that he comes is not because you've taken bread and cup, but because you have received Jesus. The one whose body and blood was given that we remember today. Because righteousness only comes through him. I want to invite you to stand for this moment of response and song. But there are some of you in this room today that need to be honest with the Lord about a coldness in your heart of a love for the body. That coldness is keeping you from a close relationship with the Lord. Because as you are cold toward them, you are cold toward him. And so I encourage you, in this moment, ask that the Lord would intensify your love for the body, not only us locally gathered, but our brothers and sisters in other contexts. I'll be here to pray for you, but let us worship in song as we respond in prayer.